So tonight I wanted to talk about one of the teachings from the heart of the Buddha's Dharma, and that is the teachings about what are often known as the Four Noble Truths. And one thing to say, even just about the title, is that um, these aren't truths that are, in some ways, particularly special. What's special is when you're able to see them. It's actually you're the one who's noble, not the truth itself. So just sort of keep that in mind if you begin to think as you hear, oh, I know that one a little, that's really good news, you know, that means that um, you're actually seeing something, you're part of the the noble group, if you will. So, and I want to work with it slightly differently tonight. I want to work with them starting with the fourth of the noble truths and work back to the first one. Because it's kind of interesting to look at it that way. So in the fourth of these truths, the Buddha gives us a path of practice, the eightfold path. I sometimes think of it, since I know a lot of people who do 12-step work, I think of it as eight-step work. (laughs) So it's eight ways of working that um, will help you to come to a place of the ending of suffering, or at the very least, less suffering. And so these eight steps are wise understanding, seeing things clearly, having some understanding of how things are, wise attitude or intention. I prefer the latter as a translation. It's clearer for me, wise intention. And then three steps that are about how you work with your everyday life, wise action and speech and choice of livelihood. And then three that are primarily about training the mind, about effort and mindfulness and concentration. So in the first of those steps, wise understanding, actually is nested the other three of the truths because that's what's really important to understand is how this works. And so to take a step back then as we consider wise understanding to the third of the truths, which is it's possible to wake up. This is the really, really good news one. That's partly, I think, why I like to start at this end once in a while. Instead of starting with the bad news, we're starting with the good news. (laughs) And as is sometimes said, Um, And if you're not going to wake up all the way, it's at least possible to wake up some and to suffer less. And probably, I look around the room, there's a number of us in here who have practiced together for a long time. And I dare say every one of you knows that, in fact, you have suffered less partly because of what you've learned from these teachings, that they do, in fact, help. And that is a very real possibility to come to the end of suffering and to be fully enlightened is to come to a complete ending of suffering so you know if you're kicking yourself around the block because you're not there yet just remember that being there is 
really, really far down the path. You know, you're practically at Buddhahood at that point. So, um, but it is possible to suffer a great deal less, to have less difficulty in our lives, to be happier and to have more ease and more equanimity. So the other thing that's fairly obvious when you pay attention to the Buddha's teachings is he had an amazing kind of analytical mind. And he was really interested in trying to figure out you know, how the mind and heart worked and how people worked so that um, he could help. So the next thing is that he really took a look at, well, what's, you know, where, what comes up a lot that seems to cause the most difficulty? What's the core thing? It's not, he's not, wasn't so interested in surface um, phenomena, but he was very interested in, you know, what's the underlying issue? And as he paid attention, what he came up with was that the underlying issue is that place where we are always dissatisfied, uncomfortable, wanting things to be other than the way they they are. And we get very, very attached to things being in a particular way. And every one of us in this room knows this place. We want the people we know and love to be a particular way. I don't want you to be grumpy. I want you to be happy. I don't want you to be in a hurry. I want you to go slow. I don't want the weather to be hot. I want it to be cool. I don't want my job to be this way. I want it to be that way. I don't want to get sick. I want to be healthy. I mean, we do it around everything. Everything. Probably almost... I think sometimes from the moment I wake up sometimes I can begin to see where there's some little niggling place in the mind and heart that just is attached to things being different from what they are in all realms. And so as you sit, sometimes this can be a little bit where it gets discouraging because as you sit you begin to see how much the mind does. It does that. It's even possible sometimes um, when you're just sitting there being with your breath and your body, and sometimes there's almost a felt sensation of the mind beginning to lean out into something else. Sometimes what it leans out to and what it wants is the next thing. Okay, done with this, what's the next one? And the mind is on to the next one instead of just being here with what is. So it's that constant process of becoming, as what it's called sometimes, of attachment, of grasping, of clinging that um, we do in every part of our life. And that um, there's, there's a way in which the, the Buddha deeply acknowledges that there's, for example, pain in life that is just there. And so when he's talking about coming to the end of suffering, he's not saying that there won't be any pain. And kind of interestingly enough, I've always sort of liked it, that it's known that the Buddha had back pain, you know, and before he died he got quite sick. And he didn't just sort of dissolve into light or, you know, never have any difficulty. He was an ordinary human being with a body that, that didn't always work so well. So, so even being the Buddha... 
was not a guarantee that he wasn't going to have a bad back, because he did. So the Buddha is saying it's not those kinds of things. And he's not even saying, sometimes as we look at this place of attachment and wanting things to be different, (coughs) it's like we get very judgmental of it. We want that to be different, right? So then, of course, you're making it exponential because not only are you attached to something being different, then you're attached to not being attached. And then, of course, you're really in trouble because um, there's more that sort of an exponential amount of attachment. So, so he's, it's really helpful to hold this as being descriptive. This is kind of how it is. It doesn't make you bad that it happen that it happens. It's just the nature of the human mind, and he's he's pointing out that this is the nature of the human mind. And so then he says, of course, then what happens is that wanting everything to be other than what it is, that's what creates an enormous piece of what he called dukkha. This is dukkha. And dukkha is a hard word to translate. We often translate it suffering, but then it gets confused with pain. And we think, well, you know, is, is, is my grasping causing my hip to hurt, you know, or my knees or my back? And the answer is no. You know, that isn't what causes that kind of pain. Or is, the, is grasping causing, you know, this or that? And the answer is no. It's the grasping and the attachment and the holding on are what make ordinary things much, much worse. So if your beloved dog dies, you will be sad, almost certainly. There will almost certainly be suffering and dukkha because you will almost certainly be attached, right? There's just no way that that's not going to be true. And of course it's even more difficult if it's your partner or your parent or your child, someone that you've been with for a long, long time, deeply, deeply love. And there is attachment in love and there's almost always clinging in that kind of love. And so when there something changes that we don't want, there is dukkha, there is this unhappiness, discomfort, dis-ease, suffering. And so over and over and over again we do it. And so the Buddha says, you know, it is possible to hold things in such a way that there's less suffering. So one of my favorite stories about this, this is an Ajahn Chah story. So Ajahn Chah was the Thai uh, meditation master who was Jack Cornfield's teacher. And Ajahn Chah had a favorite cup that he used when he gave Dharma talks. It was blue with a nice rim. And he really liked it. And every time he gave a talk, there it was. And one day, one of his monks said, but sir, aren't you attached to this cup? I mean, you always want it. And if it's not there, we have to hunt and find it. And, you know, what is this? And Ajahn Chah, who had a really good sense of humor, laughed and he held the cup up and he said, I consider this cup to be already broken. So, you know, it's a wonderful story to begin to look at everything in a way as already broken. You know, to look around the room 
and to realize we're all already dead. You you could do that. It's a little scary sometimes, but you can do it. And it's true, because at some point we will all be dead. And we can do that with the people that we're close to. You know, this person who has the nature to arise will in some some way die sooner or later, and it might be at a time that I don't particularly want. And what is it to remember that as we sit with this person? Or to practice with some of the things, you know, there's, there's easier places to practice. You know, the weather, for example, is one. You wake up and it's cold and foggy and you are hoping for warm and sunny. And you can notice, oh look, I'm attached. And you may even notice, oh look, I'm actually unhappy and dissatisfied and grumpy because it's cold and foggy and I wanted warm and sunny. And then you might notice, oh look, I'm causing myself some dukkha. Isn't this interesting? Because I'm attached. And that's that place where you can begin to actually see, oh, this is how these truths work. You know, that every time I do this, then that's where the dukkha is. That's where the the where life is really not satisfactory and unhappy and and difficult. So when you begin to see that, that's the place then where actually the rest of the Eightfold Path comes in and becomes really important. Because it's important then to think about, okay, how am I going to train the mind and the heart and my being so that I live this way. And that's really what those those eight steps are about. When you have that piece of wise understanding, then out of that comes, oh, I think I need to create a strong intention around practice. And so that might be the intention to sit, because the thing about sitting, this wonderful thing that we do, is that when we sit, we stop. And maybe you only stop for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, but it's that stopping that sometimes allows us to begin to see what we're doing in the rest of our lives. It's really true. I just came back from teaching a week at Spirit Rock with Bob and Marcy. This was the Vipassana Santa Cruz week to take over the rock. And um, so we had a good time teaching a retreat on the 32 parts of the body. And often when people come to a week of retreat and they stop, they sit down, and of course it's truer if you sit longer, then what begins to show itself are the things you're not looking at, right? All of the stuff of your life, the relationships you're not paying attention to, or the hurt that happened or the particular kind of suffering and you know when we're going fast enough we can just keep pushing it into the background you know and pretending that it's not there but if you stop sometimes it shows itself and even stopping on a daily basis for whatever amount of time you do is a step in that direction it will help you to have a moment to begin to see what you're doing. So you you might create the intention to sit. You might also create the intention to bring some mindfulness to the rest of your life and your everyday activities. 
so that you can also be um, wiser and more skillful and non-harming. So the overall intention is one of awakening and of non-harming. So those two things are really what we create the intention for. We really want to see you know, what's true, what's true about my own existence, what's true about everything else, and I want to live in a way that doesn't hurt anyone else. And then the Buddha says, okay, so there's three things, three major areas to pay attention to in your everyday life. The area of how you act. Are you acting in a way that is kind and compassionate? Are you speaking in a way that is also kind and compassionate, honest, beneficial, timely, and warm. Those are the four things that need to be present. And are you choosing to do something with your life that is not harming? And there's some, you know, the the Buddha lived a long time ago, so his list, you know, he didn't want you to be an arms merchant. So I doubt that there's anybody here who's an arms merchant. But I've had some really interesting conversations with people over the years who have had to do a little thinking about, okay, where does my livelihood fit in? You know, is it helpful? And it, can it be useful? And so when we, when we bring our attention to these areas, you know, sometimes it's helpful even just to pick a specific thing. You know, some particular moment of speech, when you answer the telephone, or when you first greet someone at the beginning of the day, or a particular person that you're having some difficulty with. You know, okay, I'm really going to work on wise and careful speech when I'm with this person. Or a particular kind of wise and skillful action that you want to give your attention to. So that we are living in our, our way, our lives in a way that is non-harming. Many people also, as part of that, keep the five precepts of not not killing and not stealing, not taking that which isn't given to you, of not harming anyone, including yourself, with your sexuality, of not harming anyone with your speech, and not intoxicating your body or your mind with drugs or alcohol. So those are also guidelines that really help with this part of the Eightfold Path. And then the last part of the Eightfold Path is about training the mind. So this is really about bringing some energy into noticing what it is that the mind does. So it takes some effort. You can't just sort of go, okay, I think I'd like to be mindful and then sort of settle back in your comfy chair and not pay much attention. It just doesn't work like that. The mind... Now, Jack Cornfield used to like to say, the mind has no shame. And the mind has no shame. This is, it's really true. And so it does take some effort, because otherwise the mind will not settle, will not be mindful, and will not concentrate. It's happy to get lost in stories and soap operas and, and think nasty thoughts, and that's just what the mind does. So it takes a certain amount of effort. And then... There's the whole area of mindfulness, really beginning to pay attention to what goes on in the mind. And so that's where sitting is particularly helpful, because as you begin to be mindful of the nature of the mind as you sit, and really one of the most helpful things is that difficult insight of how much it wanders off, which I'm sure probably all of us saw tonight, you know, where the mind wanders off. So you begin to see this mind, it's restless, it's squirrely, it's wiggly, it doesn't want to be present. 
And that's a very important thing to begin to see about the mind. And then to begin to see, you know, all the ways in which different mind states arise, and to begin to see that you can notice them, and you don't necessarily have to act on them. You can have a thought and not believe it. Not all thoughts are worth thinking, but they come up in the mind anyway. And as you begin to give your attention to the mind, you know that. And then there's the practice of concentration, of really, um, as you settle, as you're mindful, then also beginning to to, um, bring your attention to one point. And there are practices of concentration where you settle on one point and you stay there, But what's really important for most of meditation practice and most everyday life practice is that you develop enough concentration so that when you're present, when you're here, as we talked about in the instructions, then the mind doesn't wander off and it will stay present and you can go into your experience to see what is the nature of the experience I'm having now. And that's the place where insight, in fact, can arise. When you have that level of concentration to be able to go into the nature of the body or of of the mind and heart and really begin to peel back some of the layers. So this particular teaching of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is the first teaching which the Buddha offered after his enlightenment experience. So this is called the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. This is what really turns the wheel of the truth. This is what turns the wheel of the teachings. And maybe the last thing to say is, some years ago, I did a period of solo retreat, and I decided that I was going to to work my way through as many of the middle-length discourses of the Buddha as I could. There's a thick volume of them. There's about 150. Maybe there are. I think that might be the number. And I think I made my way through 97 or 98 of them. I clearly wasn't reading for depth, but I just wanted to have a feel of, well, what does the Buddha teach? And I was totally delighted partway through when I realized the Buddha had a shtick just like every other Dharma teacher I know. You know, if you go to here... Jack, you get a certain flavor. If you go to hear Joseph Goldstein or Gil Frunstall or Mary Grace, we all have different flavors. And some, certain, you know, those of you who've sat with us for a while, you know, we have a certain predictability about the kinds of things that we teach. So the Buddha, be, you know, he was predictable too. And this is one of the things that he was predictable about: was this teaching about the four noble truths, about how clinging is the cause of so much dukkha and about the path for awakening. So it's a very, very important teaching to sit with. Um, My friend Ajahn Sumedho likes to say, this is the teaching of a lifetime and the practice of a lifetime. In many ways, you need hardly anything else if you just had this. So I think I'll stop there. And we have maybe some time for some questions. And since this night is open to new people and beginners as well as experienced, if any of you are are new, I particularly invite your questions and invite you not to be shy. At the same time, those of you who have been around, I would also invite your questions because sometimes it's very helpful to newer people 
to hear the questions from people who've been around a while. So please. Uh, well, I don't have any trouble with four noble truths or the eightfold path, but I'm afraid I don't know what here is. And therefore, I don't know what distraction from hereness is. For instance, in the beginning, uh, I had to put my con- my consciousness on the words of another, and it was external to me. And I thought, but this is a distraction. And then some other voice said, well, how do you know that's not part of the hereness? Exactly. so here present moment seeing hearing tasting touching smelling and mental objects that is how our knowledge of the present moment is made up there's nothing else it's internal and external and in fact when the Buddha gives his instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta on mindfulness he talks about mindfulness of the breath internally and externally. Mindfulness of sensations internally and externally. So he's not saying that it's just your internal experience at all. He's really talking here, if you wanted to retranslate it as the present moment, that would be fine. Now, also fine. So so the the sounds and the thoughts and the itch and the breath, all of those can be here. And your job is not to go wandering off thinking about and getting caught in the stories about what could come next. Does that help? Okay. And Please. also point out that the voice may be external, but you're only aware of it through your ears, and the internal sensations yeah. in, in, your, in your senses, any of the things that are going on in the room, you only know about it through your body. So it really is still internal. Mm-hmm. But my mind is processing. Yeah. Well, it's okay. The, the Buddha does not say your mind is bad. Mm-hmm. He just says you have to learn more about it in order to use it skillfully. So it's it's... It's, and yes, there's a, there's a very interesting way, if you really want to play with this, when none of us can be really present in the really present moment, because by the time we've processed, processed it, it's gone. So by the time the sound makes its way into your central nervous system, you're, in, you're back there with the dinosaurs all the time. So that's even... I mean, it all gets... When you start getting very um, ultimate about it, it starts getting pretty weird and pretty interesting. And there <laughs> really aren't, there's a place where it's very mysterious. So play with it. Yeah. What is your name? I'm Rick. Rick, thank you. If you would say your names, that would be really helpful, actually. No more questions? I can't believe that. So let me say a couple of things about sloth, otherwise often known as sloth and torpor, which (laughs) makes it 
is, is one of the hindrances, and it comes up in practice. So actually, a very simple practical question is, are you practicing at a time of day when you're tired? First thing. So is that an okay time for you? So you you wake up and all of that. Okay. So one question when something like that comes and you if you've ruled out things like you know maybe you're tired. I mean if you sit like often sitting here at night. You know if I look out I see that people are nodding off a little bit because we're all tired. It's the end of the day. So you might expect it. So if it's not a simple answer like that. It may, there's, there's a way in which you may need to bring your energy up so it becomes a question of effort and just intensifying how you're doing your practice might be that being maybe much more careful about keeping your attention on the breath or, or, or do you do mental noting at all with your some? So you might step up the mental noting a little bit just to keep the mind a little more right there in the experience certainly can practice with your eyes open you can also practice standing up so you know you bring some energy to it to counter that slot if it's resistance then the question really becomes is there something that you might see if you weren't sleepy and so that's always an interesting thing. You know, is there something I'm just not wanting to see, not wanting to feel, not wanting to understand, so I get sleepy and I go away? So all of those could be fruitful. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I think that's, in some ways, it's, it's such a common difficulty for people in our practice. And some, I think, it's because we're all tired. But I don't think it's just that. Yeah. Please, Julia. Um, could you speak a little bit more about noting? Ah, about noting. I, I sometimes find myself that I'm trying to find just the right note. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I should narrow down the, the number of notations I have. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I would encourage you not to be picky about the right note. So what Julia is asking about is mental noting. And mental noting um, comes out of one of the Burmese traditions for practice. And in mental noting, you use a soft mental naming of your experience as a way to place the mind directly in the experience. So you might, for example, note in and then out with your breathing, or rising and then falling if you're following the breath in the chest or the belly or expanding and then contracting if you're following the whole breath. Or you might note hearing if there's a sound, hearing, hearing, or itching, itching, or sad, or angry, or whatever is coming through in that moment. It is a thought, often people say, but isn't that thinking, you know? And so this is one of the places actually where the mind is useful. It can be helpful to use this soft noting as a way, as I said, to place the mind in the experience. It gives it a little something to do, actually. So it's not so likely to sneak out the back door. And you can step it up sometimes so the noting is a little faster if if you're needing to bring some energy to the practice or if you're really trying to stay on track. 
you can also note, like sometimes, um, sometimes your lens for your practice is really right up close, and you're just watching the tiniest sensation in your nostrils. But other times, all you can do is they're seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and mental objects. It's crazy. You can't sort it out. It's just chaos. And then a great mental note that, in fact, brings you back here is it's crazy. And you might just sit there and go, crazy, crazy, (laughs) crazy, for a while. Because it's happening too fast. You can't... And it's jumbled and it's confusing. Confusing might be a note. You could use that. And then as it settles down, you know, you might suddenly, oh, there's my breath. Okay, in, out, rising, falling, or there's a sound, hearing, hearing, and then you come back. It's useful not to... You can use mental noting. I sometimes think of it as mental bashing. For things like thinking, like thinking, 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 bad mind, thinking. And, and so that's not so helpful, so don't do that. And it's also actually not helpful to get real picky about your notes. So if you can't quite figure, you know, is it an itch or does it hurt? Mm-mm-mm. And then you're gone, right? You're lost and what is it? So then just do something general like sensing. Or you know, in a broad way, until so you don't. It's it's more important that you actually get the mind there than that you have the right word. We're not interested in the right word here. Yeah. Do you note and then go back to your object? Note and then let the note take. Depends care of it on it. It might. You're not noting to make something go away. So that's right. another way to do the bashing. It's like if I note the itch enough, it'll go away, then I can go back to the breath. If I note the pain enough, this is one of the places where we often want it to go away. If I note aching, you know, ten times, it'll be gone. But, you know, if you note your pain, it will do one of three things. It will stay the same, it will get better, or it will get worse. And you don't get to say, you know. So if something is really strong, and you're really going into it, you're very interested in all of these sensations in your left knee, and you've got needles and throbbing and aching, and you can stay with it as long as it's interesting. The breath is the primary object. It's the place that you rest. It's the place you go back to. You never get too far away from it. But if there's something that's very compelling then stay with that. There's no need to just note it once and go back. You might find that you're jumping around too much if you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Penetrating something with your awareness is one... Upandita was one of the teachers who was really big on mental noting. And he used to talk about penetrating your experience with your awareness. So you're really going into it. It's not just naming it and going away from it. Mm-hmm. If you just name it and go away from it, you, there's things you won't see, actually. Yeah. So hearing, for example. Hearing is really fun to play with. And it's very interesting to begin to see if you can go into your hearing enough so that it's vibration on the eardrum. And you're not hearing words, cars, birds, music. It's just vibration. And it is possible. It's probably not going to happen here. But it does happen on retreats, and all of a sudden you notice, oh, hearing, hearing. And then I've had the experience of the thought goes through, oh, I don't even know what it is I'm hearing. I'm just hearing. 
And then, you know, then you can get excited and get off course and (laughs) come back, and that's not so good, but, yeah. Okay, maybe that's a good place to stop. So, enjoy the... All of you noble beings, please enjoy the Four Noble Truths. So, there are a few announcements. Um, This weekend... We are having a day of council training with our good friends Bonnie and Marlo who have done a lot of work with the board and the teachers. And so on Saturday they're doing a day long that's open to anyone who would like to learn some about council training. I would completely recommend them and the training to any of you. It's a very good way to learn about wise speech. It's very helpful in all kinds of group Context. So if you have any reason at any place in your life to be working with groups of people, I would encourage you to think about coming to this day. It's from 9 until 5. It's completely on a donation basis, and um, there's space available, and there's flyers over there on the table, and it's also on the website. It would be helpful to know if you're coming, but you know, if you wake up Saturday morning and think, yep, I'm really ready for a day of council, and oh dear, I didn't register. Come anyway, because the chances are really good that there'll be space for you. And then um, Bob's um, 32 Parts of the Body class is starting on October 9th? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yes, second, I can't read that. And um, yes, an introduction day on tomorrow. And then my committed students group is starting on Tuesday. Um, we've got, I, I don't know, think there's a registration for Bob's. There is for mine, and it's got a lot of people. But, you know, again, if you wanted to do it, um, let me know and come. And then I also just wanted to announce that um, my husband Russell and I are doing another couple's um, weekend in early November on working with intimate relationship as practice. And this is the 13th to the 15th of November. And there are flyers over there. If any of you are interested, we have room for at least two more couples, two or three. So we'd love to hear from you. Anything else? I've yes. Carla asked me to announce that on a, next Saturday, October 10th, she's doing a day long in nature from 10 to 4. And I think there's flyers out there. Great. Thank you. And then Mm-hmm. Anything else? Just to remind you that the Donna baskets are there, and that's an opportunity to support both the center and the teachings, and they're over there by the door. Okay, let's end with some loving kindness practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.